Good again to Meadowland Church. My name is Adam, and it is great to be with you uh, this morning. Hey, I want to give you a, an opportunity to open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you uh, brought a Bible, I'd love for you to open up your Bible. If you want to go digital, you can turn on your Bible. Uh, if you're here without a Bible, uh, there's Bibles scattered all throughout this room, and you can grab one. In fact, if you do not own a Bible, just grab one of those uh, black pew Bibles. Uh, take that home. It's yours. Read it, highlight it, mark in it, put your name in it. Uh, we'd love to give you a free gift of a Bible this morning. So, uh, Luke chapter 9, page 866, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, as you're turning to your Bible, just one, one quick thing. Uh, one of the things Steve failed to announce is that if I do come to your home and do Easter service recreation, uh, Steve will do an interpretive dance. That's my one requirement. Uh, we have ordered him a special spandex suit. He looks great in it and a ribbon. So uh, you can even pick the music, and if we approve it ahead of time, he will dance for you. So think about that. If you want me to come... Just let that mental image set in for a minute. And, uh, so uh, one of the things I actually really do want to announce to you is uh, on May 18th, we have a, a special members meeting. Uh, that's the official uh, title for it, a special members meeting at 7 p.m. That's a Sunday evening uh, as we continue to kind of navigate through uh, some of the transition here at Meadowland Church. We announced last week that the elders, after going through a, a long process and uh, praying and deliberation and conversation and seeking God's will, have asked Steve if he would become the next uh, lead pastor here at Meadowland Church, and he has accepted. And so uh, the next step in that is to have a special members meeting uh, where the members of the church can have an affirmation vote to affirm that vote. According to our bylaws, our members have to affirm him as the next lead pastor, and we'd like to do that May 18th so that we could officially uh, give him that title and start working, uh, and me transitioning out to go plant a new church, and Steve stepping into uh, leading here at Meadowland Church. And so if you're a member, really, really need you to be there that night. The way the affirmation vote works is if you're not there, it's a vote for no, and that's how it goes down in the books. And so uh, we need so many people to be there. If you're not there, it gets voted as a no. If you just know for sure, hey, I can't be there the 18th, and you're a member of Meadowland Church, uh, for a small fee, uh, you can meet with myself or one of the elders and fill out an absentee ballot, and you can vote without being there. I'm joking about it being a small fee, by the way. It's huge, so it's actually a large fee. So um, May 18th, you can be there for that. Uh, if you're not a member of Meadowland Church, you're still invited. You, you can come to that and hang out, and we're actually looking to add some new elders to our elder board, and so our members will talk about that. There'll be a new spending plan. There'll be all kinds of funny stuff. Steve's going to dance for us. It'll be wonderful. So May 18th, 7 p.m., would love to see you there. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you, God, for your word. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so that we can know you, so that we can respond to you, God, so that we can love you and we can follow you. God, we ask that this morning as we open up your word and study your scripture, God, that you would reveal yourself. God, we thank you that you are a God that speaks, that you are a God who reveals, that you are a God that pursues us. And so, God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that you would uh, give us eyes to see you, hearts to love you, ears to hear you. God, I pray that uh, we would respond to you and worship you because you alone are worthy to be praised. So, God, we need your help to do that this morning. We ask that you would draw near. God, I pray that as I teach it, I would actually be silent and your voice would be heard. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, one of the things that I was thinking about is we were getting ready for this message this week is... The, the reality is in every single one of our lives, because there's times 
when our words are really, really important, are really, really critical. And, you know, the reality is, is that no matter what we say and when we say it, our words have power, that we can uh, use our words to encourage or to discourage, to build people up or to tear people down. Our words can heal hearts. Our words can hurt hearts. But it seems like there's these times, maybe these specific times where because of the situation, because of where we're at and the circumstances surrounding what we're going to say, I just think there's times, maybe you've experienced this before, where you're highly aware that whatever you say next is really, really important, right? You ever been in one of these situations where you just know, man, whatever comes out of my mouth next, there's going to be some impact, there's going to be some repercussions, and it's one of those things, or at least in my own life, where I know if I blow this one, like if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to be reminded of it for years and years and years, and it won't go so well, but if I get it right, and if I say the right thing, that maybe, maybe it'll just go well, and maybe God would use that time. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where you just know whatever you're about to say next will matter. In fact, I think as we look at these times, in fact, there's times in our history that uh, there's certain people at certain times and certain places that have said things that actually impact us. Generations after it happened, that there's speeches that have been recited, there's quotes that we hang on walls, we put on bumper stickers, we, we use uh, for illustrations and for inspiration in our life. And the reality is, is there's certain times and certain places that what we say next matters. In fact, sometimes those things that we say can go on and on and on in the way they impact people, that they can leave a legacy behind. In fact, as I was thinking about that this week, as somebody who communicates quite often, I was thinking about great communicators, people that have said things that maybe years have gone by, and for the most part, most people remember the things that they have said. That's so what I want to do this morning is give you a pop quiz. You didn't know you were going to get this this morning. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. And I want you to feel any pressure. I'm not going to tell you that first service got them all right. Okay, so there's no pressure here. I just, you just be you, and uh, we'll see what happens. So uh, I want you to guess. I'm looking, I'm looking for some feedback here. And, uh, and so guess who said this? These are all pretty easy. But Jesus is not the answer on this one. But you probably would do good in Sunday school. So here we go. And so my fellow Americans... That's not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. History buffs. Anybody? John F. Kennedy. At his inauguration in 1961. A famous speech. Because where he was and what he said, it mattered. And it's something we still know today. What about this one? I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That's right. Martin Luther King, 1963. You know what's so incredible about that? Is that part of Martin Luther King's speech not in his notes? He, he ad-libbed it. He, he just said, hey, I, I'm gonna, this is coming from my heart. This is going off the notes. And you know, whoever helped him prepare his cue cards was freaking out, right? That one's not in there! I say, I got, I'm, I got a dream. What about this one? Four score and seven years ago. Our forefathers, come on, Lincoln, right, 
brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether the nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. Gettysburg, November 19th, 19, or 1863. Excuse me. Now this last one. Okay, so far you guys are doing good. I'm excited for you. Now here, this one's a little tricky. I'm going to give you some hints. Okay, but let's see if you get this one. We shall go on to the end. And we shall fight in France. There's your first hint. France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. And we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. And we should fight in the hills. And we shall never surrender. Any guesses? Churchill. Winston Churchill. Just became prime minister. Was rallying the troops. And like, listen, I love it. I just want to go fight now. I mean, streets, field. I don't even care who we fight. Anybody just want to go fight? Let's just go pick a fight. I'll go. Let's go. I love that. We will never surrender. I'm all about that. He didn't say we'll win. He just said we're not going to surrender. And now here's the deal, right? Because we were saying that certain times and certain places, certain things that what we say really matters. And you might be like me and go, well, that's awesome, but I'm not a president and I'm not like living, like leading a civil war. No one's asked me to give me a speech, you know, that somebody's going to listen to. But the same thing is true, right? I mean, men, I'm going to pick on you a little bit this morning. Just because I'm one, and so I, this is the only point of, you know, point of perception that I have into this. But here we go. You know this, right? Maybe it's not about a civil war, but your wife says to you, Honey, how does this outfit make me look? Whatever you say next. And you know, right, if you pause too long, you said something, didn't you? Right? See? And all the ladies said, Amen. Right? Hey, maybe your boss calls you in and says, Hey, we need to talk, and you just know whatever I say next. I should probably call him sir and not dude, right? Whatever I say next matters. My mom used to do this to me all the time, and I think it's cruel and unusual punishment, and I can't wait to do it to my own children. My mother would say, Adam, anything you need to tell me. And when she say that, here's what I knew. She knew something. The question is, what did she know? And see, I didn't want to like self-incriminate myself and tell her something that she didn't know about. And that was her whole point. Anything you want to tell me? So my answer was always this. I don't think so. Something you want to bring up? And she goes, no, I'm giving you a chance. Something you want to tell me? Not really. Nope, I'm good. Let me, mm, nope, I'm good. Maybe another way to think about this is maybe, maybe you've had something so important to talk about. Maybe you've had a question so significant to ask that you set the stage. Right? I'm going to pick on, on men just again because this is how we think, right? Like maybe you want to have a conversation with your wife, right? Like, honey, I need a motorcycle. Or, honey, I want to trade in the car for something a little cooler, right? Uh, maybe you have some sort of conversation like that, and you come home, and you can see that she seems a little bit flustered. There's been war, right? There was war in the kitchen, war in the living room. The kids are, are screaming, and she gives you the look. And you just know, right, probably not time to ask about the motorcycle, right? Because that won't be a conversation. I'll just get murdered, right? I mean, that just, that just won't go so well, right? You just know. I mean, think about this, guys, that you, you're thinking about, hey, I'm going to ask her to marry me, Right? Hopefully you didn't like go through the beefaroo drive-thru, right, and order some beef and say you want to eat beef together forever, baby. Like hopefully you didn't do that. If you did, we'll pray for you. Uh, maybe I don't know what she said. Like, hey, you want to eat Arby's and beefaroo forever? You know, will you marry me? I, I don't know. Okay, 
Like, most people set the stage for that, right? Because you're not really sure. You're like, I think she will, but maybe she won't. So I want to put the odds in my favor, and so we're going to go to the nice restaurant, we're going to do the nice thing, and we're going to talk about this thing forever. People are going to ask, how did you get engaged? And I don't want to seem like a moron, so I did something really nice for her, right? Because you, significant, huge question. Will you marry me? And if you say no, I don't know how that's going to go. So I really hope you say yes. Maybe you have some big news that you want to share with people. And so you kind of set the stage because you, you want to give them the big news. You want to surprise them that sometimes what we have to say, we, we just get it. It's intuitive. That we know that, hey, this is so important. That this question is so big or this information is so great that I, I even want to set the stage so that what happens next can, can be remembered so that the message can be heard and so that we can have some conversation. Because there's times that what we say is incredibly important. It reveals some things about our character and what's going on in our lives. Uh, sometimes we even think that the, the message is so great that we have to set the stage, right? That we, we want the, the environment to be right for the question we're going to ask or the thing that we're going to say because we realize that there's certain times. There's certain times where what we say is so significant that it's going to have an impact in our lives. It'll have the impact on the lives of the people around us. And sometimes there's just these moments that we get it, right? That whatever I say next... Man, I'll never be able to go back on that one. And this is going to be so huge. We've become highly aware that our words have so much power and so much significance. And I think as we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 9 this morning, that's what's taking place. Like as we read about Luke chapter 9, there's some major events that are happening in the life of the disciples. Now, now here's, here's kind of where we have to start with this. Because this whole message is about following God. How do we learn to follow God, a God who's unseen? Like, what does that look like? And the first thing we have to talk about is the reality that God gives every single one of us an invitation to follow him. That's Jesus's big invitation to all of us. Would you come follow me? Hey, would you, would you, would you be willing to follow me? Would you have a relationship with me? Would you investigate my teaching and my truth? Would you investigate who I am and make a decision about me? And here's the thing, your sin it doesn't prevent you from following Jesus. In fact, it's a prerequisite. You have to be a sinner to follow Jesus. Every single person that Jesus said, follow me, was a sinner. And following Jesus doesn't even mean that you fully believe in him. As we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus invites guys like Andrew, James, and Peter, the earlier disciples, says, follow me. But they're not even really convinced of who he is yet. They just think they know a few things about him. And this idea of following is, would you, in, would you come into a relationship where we can get to know one another? Would you come into a relationship where you could hear my truth? Would you begin to grow in your trust of the things that I'm doing, the things that I say? Would you follow me? And Luke chapter 9 gives us a really great illustration of this. Because Jesus has been doing some things, and the disciples have been growing in their confidence of him. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, huge miracle, and they begin to go, man, Jesus is doing some stuff. Uh, there's this big moment in Luke chapter 9 where Luke records that Jesus is having a conversation with his followers, and he asks them this, who do, you, who, who do people say I am? And the disciples all have mixed reviews. Well, some say you're a teacher, some say you're a rabbi, some say you're Elijah. It's just, okay, wrong question. Who do you guys think I am? And Peter's the only one convinced enough that says, I believe that you're Jesus. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you are who you say you are. And Jesus then gives this huge pep talk, and he says, Peter, on that rock, on the fact that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will stand against it. Dude, that's awesome. 
Like that, that's one of those moments where words are significant. That, that's one of those times that you walk away going, did you hear what Jesus said? Like he said that he'll build his church and not even hell can stand to get it. And then something interesting starts to happen. Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about his death. He begins to tell them, hey guys, I know that you love me and I know that you're following me. I know that we're kind of on this journey together, but here's the deal. Here's something you should know. I will be crucified. I will get beaten. I will be tortured and I will die. But that's not the end of the story. I'll raise again on the third day. And for whatever reason, it seems like the disciples never ever got their head around the fact that Jesus would die and raised from the grave. In fact, most of the disciples, most of the disciples didn't make a proclamation that Jesus was who he said he was until they saw him rise. It was after the resurrection that these guys go, oh, we get it. Oh, we, we understand. In fact, one of the disciples' name was Doubting. Like, hey, we don't think Thomas is in, right? We're not sure he's buying into it. If we took a vote, we know he's voting no. But at the point where he sees Jesus again, at Jesus' invitation, touch my side, see my scars, Thomas goes, I'm in. I believe. And Jesus begins to talk about his death, and I think it's a huge discouragement for the disciples. In fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 21, says that Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Hey, this is just a secret. This is between you and me. It says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And I think this was a huge discouragement for the disciples. I think as the disciples are following, as as they're learning about Jesus, as they're increasingly putting their trust in him, they're like, what do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean you're going to be rejected? Like, Jesus, we left everything. We left the family business. We we left our lives. we're, We're going places with you. We're giving ourselves to you. We're putting our trust in you. Like, Jesus, your plan A to Z, what, what do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean you're going to be rejected? Like, you're the king of kings. You're, you're the Messiah. Like, you've been talking about your kingdom, and what do you mean? Like, when kings die, so do their kingdoms. And what? I think Jesus, being Jesus, began to sense and perceive that there was some discouragement and some disbelief among his disciples. And I think what takes place next is to encourage them. I think one of the things that Luke records in, in his book is the fact that Jesus did something to encourage the discouragement that his believers were facing. And so this is what happens. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. This is Luke, the investigator, the doctor. He says, now about eight days after these sayings. So it goes about eight days after we saw this stuff and Jesus said all these things that we didn't really know what to do with. He took with him Peter, James, and John, the trifecta. This is kind of Jesus' group that he's always with, Peter, James, and John. And they went up to the mountain to pray. Luke says, Jesus calls a prayer meeting. Hey, guys, I want to get together, just the four of us. We're going to go up on a mountain and pray. Now, what we know is the mountain they go to pray on is Mount Hermon in Palestine. It's 9,000 feet above sea level. It's 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. There's a picture of it there. I've never been to that mountain. I'll think it'd be awesome to go sometime to the Holy Land. But that's the mountain, and and from what I've read about it is when you're on top of Mount Hermon in Palestine, you can see the Jordan Valley, you can see Damascus, you can even see Jerusalem off in the distance. What I've heard is it's one of the most beautiful places to visit in the Middle East. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John there, says, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And they go up in this mountain, and they're just surrounded by this panoramic view of nature. 
that on a clear day they could look out and see the valley and just see the greatness and the vastness and the beauty of God's creation. And most people say it's about a day's journey to go up the mountain by foot following paths. So you imagine that this is about late in the evening. That the sun is starting to go down, that there's a beauty, a beauty that they haven't seen before from the mountains as the sun begins to set and all the colors in the sky are changing, the stars in the sky are beginning to come out. And Jesus says, hey, now that we're here, let's pray. And what we find out is that they're up on this beautiful mountain surrounded by God's creation and his glory and his beauty, up in that clean, crisp mountain air, that the disciples start to get a little bit sleepy. Now, this is kind of interesting because uh, this isn't the only time that Jesus asked the disciples to pray with him and they fall asleep. This seems to be something that happens a couple times with Jesus and the disciples. So they get up in the mountain and Jesus says, it's time to pray. And Peter, James, and John say, we need a nap. And I don't know if you ever struggle with praying and dozing off, but the disciples did. Maybe that's encouraging for you this morning. And so these guys begin to doze off a little bit and then something incredible happens. That as these guys are surrounded by nature, this panoramic view, the, the stars coming out, the colors of the sunset, all of a sudden, all of that begins to kind of melt away a little bit. That all of a sudden, the beauty of nature, the beauty of the stars, the beauty of the mountains, the beauty of the landscape fades away, and they, they see that there's something more beautiful. There's something more majestic. There, there's something that their eyes have never looked upon before. There's something that, that they just can't quite wrap their minds around. That scripture tells us that Jesus began to radiate, that Jesus began to, to glow, that he, he began to do something that they'd never seen before. Luke says it this way, Luke chapter 9, verse 29, and as he was praying, he being Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. That Jesus all of a sudden began to radiate. There was like light coming from him. He's almost like a sun that he is casting light out of the person of himself. Mark says it this way, Mark chapter 9 verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark goes, listen, I've seen the OxyClean commercials. Better than that. Okay? Like his clothes were whiter than, than OxyClean. I mean, he, he was transfigured. Something changed about him, which is why we call this the Mount of Transfiguration, that something happens to Jesus. Matthew says it this way, Matthew 17, 2, and he was transfigured before, him, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then as Peter, James, and John are up on this mountain, something happens to Jesus. That all of a sudden, he's almost like the sun, that he is radiating light, that he is casting light from the person of himself, that he's beautiful, that he's radiant, that he's dazzling, that he's whiter than any white they had ever seen before. And what's actually taking place is that Jesus is revealing to them the glory that is his alone. He wanted them to see it. In the midst of their discouragement, he goes, but I want, you to rem- I want to remind you of who I really am. And it's almost as though that Jesus begins to peel back his humanity a little bit. It's almost as though he dims the flesh that he's taken on because he's fully God and he's fully man. He's like, I want you to see some of the divinity. I want you to see some of the glory. I want you to see some of the holiness. I want you to remember who I am. I want you to see me as I really am, not as the way that you sometimes see me. In this moment, Jesus begins to reveal himself to Peter, James, and John in a way that they've never seen him before. 
that he's actually beginning to radiate his glory, his true essence, his divinity. And if that weren't enough, Peter, James, and John begin to realize that they're not alone anymore. All of a sudden, their eyes are so fixed on Jesus, and they're looking at him and his glory and this radiant that's coming off of him. And then they notice, hey, there's two people talking with Jesus. Like Jesus is having a conversation, and we don't know how. We don't know how they get to this conclusion. We don't know if it was just revealed to them. We don't know if Jesus told them, because there's no scripture about it. It just gets right to it. But it says that Peter, James, and John then realize that Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And they're having this conversation, and the disciples are witnessing this. At least Peter, James, and John are going, man, something significant is happening here. This is a holy moment. This is spiritually significant. Now, it's really, really significant, and it's really, really supernatural that Moses and Elijah are there for really a couple different reasons. The first one is this. Both Moses and Elijah are dead. Okay? Kind of a big deal. Uh, They show up, and the disciples are like, Jesus talks to dead people. In fact, it's significant because Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. So just a little dead, right? 1,400 years. Elijah's been dead for 900 years. Jesus is talking to two guys who are historic in the Old Testament, historic in the Jewish culture, historic in the Bible. And they're like, man, that's Moses and that's Elijah. Not only is it significant that they're dead, it's significant that both Moses and Elijah followed God and had conversations with God on mountaintops. But as we read back through the Old Testament and do a survey, we see that Moses conversed with God on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. That Elijah had conversations with God at Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19.9. It's also significant that both Moses and Elijah had been revealed God's glory. They had seen God's glory. They had moments in their life where God did something significant in their lives where he showed them a piece of his glory. Much like Jesus is now revealing his glory. It's also significant because both Moses and Elijah departed earth in an extraordinary way. That Moses died on Mount Nebo and God buried him in a grave and the location of that grave is unknown to anyone but God. That Moses saw the promised land and God said, you don't go any further. You'll die on this mountain. And scripture says that God buried Moses, that he attended to his funeral and put him in a location that God himself only knows. Elijah kind of had a cool experience that he didn't die in the way that most humans do, that he was taken up in a chariot of fire, which if you could vote for that one, I'm in. Like, how'd he go? Chariot came, he got in it, took him up to heaven. I think that'd be awesome. But Moses and Elijah are dead. They've both had conversations with God. They've both been revealed God's glory. They both departed the earth in an extraordinary way. Maybe this is the most significant is Moses and Elijah are the ultimate summary of the Old Testament. That Moses is the founder of the law, that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, that God uses Moses to deliver his people, to teach them how to follow him, to teach them things like the law and sacrifices and how to follow God, that that is Moses actually has a covenant with God, that God says, if you'll do some things, I'll do some things. And that Moses' covenant is even based off the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he goes, listen, Moses, you're, you're my guy. The author of Hebrews talks about the faith that Moses had. And Elijah then would represent the prophets. 
all the teaching and all the prophecy that the Messiah would come, that there's one that is greater who is coming who will save the world from its sin and redeem the world and reunite people with God the Father. And so here's Moses and Elijah having a conversation with Jesus who's in full glory. That he's shining like the sun. There is light coming from him. His clothes are whiter than any white that they had seen before. And the disciples begin to realize then what they're talking about. They begin to maybe overhear the conversation. Maybe for the first time they've honed in on what's really taking place there. And Luke chapter 9 verse 30 says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That Moses and Elijah show up and they're having this conversation with Jesus. And here's the topic, his death and his resurrection. He shows up and says, here's what's really happening. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about the way that he will die. And not only the way he will die, but about what he'll accomplish. And I don't think this is like a ho-hum, like sorry to hear what you're about to go through kind of thing. I think Moses and Elijah are passing the baton to Jesus. I think this is an act of worship. I think that they're saying, you're the one that's coming. You're the one that we've been living for. You're the one that we were talking about. You're the one that we've been anticipating. And that Jesus, you, you would come to fulfill. That you'll fulfill the law. That we don't no longer have to live and be holy. You will make us holy. That we don't have to be perfect. You're perfect. And Elijah would say, every word of truth, every word of prophecy that has been spoken is fulfilled in Jesus because the word became flesh. God is with us. One of maybe the most significant things is Jesus himself is the new covenant. That's what he tells us when he breaks the bread and he gives the wine at the last supper. He says, with this cup is the new covenant of my blood. That literally with the presence of Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about his death, it's like there's a new era. That there's a new coming, that there's a new way. That sacrifices would no longer have to be made because Jesus is the lamb who will be slain. That we no longer need prophets because Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. That God would speak directly to his people through Jesus by the power of his spirit. And this is a holy moment. This is significant on so many levels. The disciples see Jesus in a way they've never seen before as he reveals his glory. And not only that, Moses and Elijah are are speaking to him about what's coming. The reality that our sins can be washed away. The reality that we can be forgiven. The reality that we don't have to be good enough. The reality that it's not about religion and good works, but it's about Jesus making us lovely because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this is holy, and this is significant. I'm not so good at this, but it would seem as though this is a time for people just to be quiet. A time for reverence and for awe. And Peter completely misses it. Peter completely misses the awe. He, he completely misses the reverence. And he speaks up. Uh, Luke chapter 9 verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But they came fully awake and they saw his glory. And the two men that stood with him, 
And as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Luke kind of tags this line on there, not knowing what he says. That's the biblical way to say Peter just opened mouth and inserted foot. He just started flapping his lips. Peter had no idea what he was talking about. And most scholars that are honest with you would tell you they have no idea what Peter is talking about. That some people would say, well, Peter was just trying to be hospitable. He was thinking back to Old Testament accounts where God revealed himself to people or angels showed up and they were told to be hospitable, that maybe a visitor would actually be an angel. Maybe he thought back to Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels said, we have no idea. Maybe he was just trying to be nice. Hey, don't leave. I'll make you a place to stay. Some people think that, that maybe Peter just wanted them to stay, that he thought as they're leaving, he, he just wanted to party like it's 1999 and said, listen, I'll make some tents. You don't have to go anywhere. Like, we'll start a little fire. One of the guys will kill something. We'll just have a campfire. We'll sing Kumbaya. You guys hang out. Some people think maybe it goes as far as Peter believed that maybe if Moses and Elijah would stay, that Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. That maybe the fulfillment of those three great people in glory would somehow change the world. But we don't know because here's the thing. Something significant happens. Jesus doesn't even rebuke Peter. There's no response to Peter. It simply says this. It says that Peter's like, hey, hey we'll, we'll build a house. We can get some tents going. We'll have a party. Or hey, here, just stick around. And Luke says, as, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And as Peter's kind of flapping his lips, like, hey, I'll build a tent. Hey, All of a sudden, this cloud shows up. Now, this cloud is really, really significant. And we got to do a little bit of homework to talk about this cloud. Because this isn't just like a thunder cloud. This isn't like they're up on a mountain. They're like, rain's coming. It's a different kind of cloud. Now, now here's, here's the deal, right? What we're going to talk about this morning in this segment's a little bit out there. For, for many of you, it's probably new information. And I, Listen, I'm giving you permission to be skeptical, Okay. I'm not asking you just to buy into all this. I want you to investigate it. I want you to think about it. To be honest, I'm not even really comfortable talking about it because it sounds like really significant church language, insider language, things that, it, it, it's just a little freaky, to be honest with you. But this is where we step out in faith, and this is where we, where we believe Scripture to be true, and if Jesus said it was good, then I believe it's good. But here's, here's, here's what this cloud is. So we begin to do a, a, a survey of the Old Testament. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, God the Father reveals himself to people through a cloud, right? Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard about this. Uh, Your teacher didn't know what to to call it, but it's actually called the Shekinah glory of God. Now, the word Shekinah glory is not in the Bible. It's the word that the people of Israel used to talk about it. They they revered God so much that they didn't even call God by his name, Yahweh, right? They used words like Jehovah, which was a derivative of that word. Because they thought, who, who are we to speak God's name? So one of the ways they would talk about this cloud, this way that God would reveal himself, is they talk about the Shekinah glory of God, which was literally the way that God would manifest himself, the way that God would show up and make his presence known at a specific time, at a specific place, to specific people. Because sometimes we have this understanding about God's presence. That we, we hear scriptures like, there's nowhere that God is not. Right? David tells us, nor hypes, nor depths, no matter where I go, I could run from you, I could go into the cave, I could go down to the depths, but wherever I go, God, you were there. In fact, you knew me in my mother's womb. 
that there's nowhere that God is not. And we go, well, God's with all people at all times and all places, and that's totally true. David has a conversation with God, and God tells David, hey, when it rains, it blesses all the people. It blesses those who love me and follow me as much as it blesses those who don't love me and don't follow me and are hostile towards me, that God's at all places at all times for all people. But there's these specific times where God shows up in a very specific way. We call this the manifest presence of God. In the Old Testament, it was through this cloud sometimes, the Shekinah glory. And I just want to give you some examples just to show you this. The first would be in Exodus. Moses is leading Israel away from Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. That's what's happening. You're welcome for that. And it says, all day you'll be like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. It says, the pillar of cloud by day, and by the pillar of fire by night, they, they went before Israel in the wilderness. The guy said, hey, as you're going out of the wilderness, you know that I'm with you, and I know that I'm leading you. By day, the pillar of cloud. By night, that cloud will be luminous. It'll light up. It'll be a pillar of fire so that you know where I want you to go, so you can follow me. In fact, this is Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 23. I told you Moses had this experience with God, right? Moses is on the mountain. God's revealing himself to Moses, and he's going to reveal some of his glory. So Scripture says that Moses, God put Moses in the cleft of a rock and actually covered it with his hand so that Moses only saw the afterglow of the cloud that passes by him. It's just a kind of glory. That is, is Moses sees the afterglow of God's glory. In fact, much like the Mount of Transfiguration, the scripture says, right, Moses has, has the residue of God's radiance on him. That his face is actually shining because the radiance of God's afterglow is upon him. And the way that worked is that God covered him so he couldn't fully see him. And the reason for that is because we sinful people can't handle the full weight of God's glory. That God is so holy, holy, holy that we simply cannot handle the weight of his beauty, of his glory. And so for Moses' protection, God says, you can't see all of it, but I'll let you see what comes the very tail end. In fact, in the Old Testament, is uh, the Israelites had the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments in it. It represented literally that God was with them, that wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, God was with him, and they're actually two angels that sat upon the Ark of the Covenant and where their wings touched, God said that's his dwelling place. That's physically where he was with them. And then he gave them instructions to build a tent. It's called the Tent of Meeting. That wherever they went, because they were a nomadic people, if they set up the tent, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tent that God was with them. He was working on their behalf. He was blessing them. And in Exodus 40, 35, it says that the cloud covered the nearly finished tent of meeting and it filled the tabernacle with God's glory. And that it was one of the ways that God revealed to the Israelites, I'm with you. I'm physically revealing myself to you through the Shekinah glory, the cloud. When Solomon built his temple, on the day they dedicated it, it said the cloud covered the temple and then filled the temple. And then once God's presence was in the temple, the priests came out because God is holy, holy, holy. This is the whole reason that that Jesus tells the Pharisees, I will tear down the curtain in the temple because behind the curtain is where the Shekinah glory was, the place that sinful man could not go. 
maybe one of the most tragic events in Scripture, is that this is the same cloud, the same glory, which Ezekiel saw rise between the cherubim and move to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy, because of their rebellion, because of their hard hearts, but because of their refusal to follow God, he removes the cloud. And they physically see the cloud leave the temple, move over to the east gate of the temple. And then Ezekiel saw it finally rise to the Mount of Olives and then disappear where they saw it no more. And listen, I know that's a little bit out there. But as we study scripture, we see God using this, this way of revealing himself, that God the Father would come close to people through this cloud and reveal himself. And here's what I'm going to argue. This is, this is my stance on this, is that I think it's the same cloud that comes near. This is the Shekinah glory of God. And it is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, that this cloud comes in. And the reason that the Peter, James, and John are freaking out a little bit is because they know that, listen, this is God's glory. We, we've heard this story before. We, we've heard this Bible story. We know this is how God draws near. This is how God reveals himself. And they're afraid. And the reason they're afraid is because they know all the scripture. They know that Moses wasn't permitted to go in it. They know that Moses all saw the tail end of it. They know that it's been six hundred years since anyone in Israel has seen the cloud. So it's 600 years since God revealed his Shekinah glory, and here it comes, and it's engulfing them. And if this moment wasn't already significant, if this moment wasn't already a pinnacle time, if this wasn't a moment that would change lives and history already, I mean, it is now. I mean, you have Jesus who's revealing his glory, right? You have Jesus who's revealing himself in a way that no one has ever seen him before to Peter, James, and John. Two guys who've been dead for forever are speaking to Jesus. And then the Shekinah glory of God comes and engulfs all of them. And Luke says this is what happens next. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying. Now here's what we've already said. We've already said that there's certain times and certain places and certain situations that what we say really, really matters. And that sometimes we're just highly aware that what we say next has major impact and we can never take it back. And this is something that could go on for generations and generations. It could affect your life and my life. And it says all of a sudden this cloud comes in and there's a voice from the cloud and it says, and here's what you think, right? What would God the Father possibly say? Like if this is if this is real and God the Father is now with them and showing him that his, their glory and that he's there and he's about to say something, like what's it gonna be? Like of all the mysteries of the world, of all the things that God could say, it's gotta matter. And if we just take the scripture for what it says about God, right? That he's holy, 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 that's the crea- he's the creator of all things, that he's smart, he's smarter than any of us in this room, he's smaller than all of us put together, that he's the creator. Like the reason that we didn't crash into Pluto last night was because God designed it in such a way and that Jesus held the stars in the sky. That's what scripture says, that Jesus literally holds our planet on his axis and doesn't cause us to crash into things by his might, right? He's that smart. Don't give me that job. We'll go off axis really, really fast and probably hit the sun, he does all that. 
And if we just assume that God is intentional, if we just assume that God the Father is an intellectual, if we just assume that he's not going to wing it, right? Like he doesn't show up in his cloud and go, what am I going to say here? He doesn't pull out his like Bible Mad Lib app. I'm just going to throw in some words. If we believe that God's really intentional, listen to what he says next. Because this is significant. So then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So God the Father shows up and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Of all the things that God could say, of all the things that God could reveal. In that moment, as Jesus is showing his glory, as Moses and Elijah, the, the giver of the law and the great prophet, are with Jesus, speaking about his life and his death and his resurrection, and God the Father shows up in the Shekinah glory with this cloud, and he goes, here's what I want you to know. If you only hear one thing, if Peter stopped talking about tents, if you're going to walk away with one thing, Here's what I want you to know. This is what this event is all about. This is what's taking place here. This is my son. My chosen one. Listen to him. See, just let that sink in for a minute. Then that holy moment on that mountaintop, God's message to Peter, to James, to John, his message to you and to me, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Which means the question that every single one of us is faced with is, are you listening? Are you listening? Do you listen to Jesus? Do I listen to Jesus? Are we listening? Maybe he asked the question, well, listen, hey, listen, I know the rest of the story. I know like 2,000 years ago he was put on a cross and he was executed and he was dead and buried and he rose again. Like, does Jesus still speak? Yeah. But one of the clearest and most easiest ways that we can hear Jesus' voice is in the Bible. Every word of Scripture in the Bible is the voice of Jesus. That's why John says the word became flesh, that Jesus is the word of God. And that we have the opportunity at any given moment and any day to open up our Bibles and hear Jesus' voice about any given topic, any kind of circumstances, any kind of decision that we're facing. Does Jesus speak? Absolutely. The question is, are we listening? And that sometimes we get so confused about following Jesus. Sometimes we make it about so many things and so complex and what kind of music do you listen to and what kind of Bible do you have and what kind of clothes do you wear and like when God the Father showed up on the mountain in the Shekinah glory, he just says this. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. See, this is why this is so important. Because in Luke chapter 9 verse 36 says this. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen. See, one of the things we could do is you say, well, you're telling me to listen to Jesus, but how do I do that? How how do I read my Bible? I want to get pragmatic. I want to get technical. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. 
we could do all that, but I think that would be a distraction this morning. Because most of us know how to listen. Like when you woke up this morning, you probably had conversations with someone and you listened. Maybe on the way here this morning, you turned on the radio and like you didn't have to pull out a pamphlet, Four Steps to Listening. Just turned on your radio and you listened. And listening to Jesus really isn't all that difficult. We try to make it difficult, but it's really not that difficult. And if you want to know if you're reading your Bible the right way, here's, here's the clue. When you read your Bible the right way, you find Jesus alone. You see that it's in Christ alone. And that when you spend time in prayer, if you want to know you're praying the right way, you get to the point where all you see is Jesus. It says this whole event happens, and there's all these things, this glory, this radiance, God the Father, Moses and Elijah and the disciples, Peter, James, and John said, in a moment, it was just Jesus. Almost as though what God the Father said is, this is my son, my chosen one, listened to him, and then took everything away to go, he's the point. The reason for this whole thing is him. The one thing I want you to walk away with is him. And you go, well, God, what do you want me to do? I just want you to listen to him. And this is why this is really, really significant. It's because sometime later, Peter records in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, this is kind of my testimony. This is what took place up on the mountain. I want you to see what he says. He says, for we did not follow clearly devised myths. So Peter's using a negative statement to talk about what he does follow. Because if you want to know who I follow, if you want to know what I'm all about, if you want to know who I'm following, well, here's the deal. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and when the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, talking about that cloud, he said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, And we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. You say, why is this so important? It's because following Jesus always starts with listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus always precedes following. See, as we talk about learning to follow an unseen God, the first question is this, are you listening? Are you listening? Right now, in your life, where you are, are you listening? Because listening always precedes following. And I realized this morning that we didn't wrap this all up in like a Friends episode where the conflict's all resolved. I realize you probably have more questions and answers, and that's why I would really like for you to come back next week, and we're going to talk about the relationship of listening and following. But here's, here's, here's where it begins, right? Are you listening? And you go, but I'm not even a Christian. And you go, that's awesome. I don't, I'm like skeptical. You're talking about clouds that talk. That's awesome. The question is, would you listen? Would you take time this week to open up your Bible and read the words of Jesus and listen? You haven't a believer for a really long time. That's, that's awesome. Are you listening? How are you listening? Where in your life are you not listening? Because the thing that God the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Are you listening?
and listening always precedes following. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your scripture. We believe it to be powerful and true. Uh, God, I, I know that this is a difficult one, at least for me, maybe for all of us, God, because uh, most of us do not have real-life experience with shiny clouds that talk and presume to be you. So, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us faith. God, that we would believe in you and trust in you, that we would believe that if you, Jesus, can be killed on a cross and be raised on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, help us to believe that God the Father can sometimes reveal himself through this great cloud called the Shekinah glory. And God, I pray that you'd help us believe that these words that are spoken to us today from Luke's account are true, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ, that Peter, James, and John did see your glory, that they saw you speaking to Elijah and Moses, that God the Father showed up and revealed to them that you are his son in whom he is pleased, that you are chosen and that we should listen to you. God, I pray that through the power of your spirit this morning that you would give us ears to hear you. And no matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, I pray that today, starting now, we begin to listen to you. Doesn't mean we have to agree with it all. Doesn't mean we have to believe it at all. Doesn't mean we even have to call ourselves Christians yet. But could we start to listen to you? Because God, we believe that listening always precedes following. And I believe you've given every single one of us in this room an invitation to follow after you. So God, help us. Help us to take that next step. Build our confidence. Build our trust in you. And help us trust you enough to begin listening to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this point of the